the leading monasteries should become almost like a sort of um, English version of the uh, of the Habsburgs' Escorial, you know, a, a, a sort of um, palace monastery, um, a great palatial church institution that sort of reflects glory back towards the king. That's clearly his plan right the way through almost to the end of the decade. And it's really only after the the shock to everyone of the uprising, the rebellion that we know of as the Pilgrimage of Grace in, uh, in 1536, um, that perhaps there is an awareness that um, the this new relationship with the crown is volatile um, and that the the future direction of that relationship is now much more uncertain let's get on to the valor ecclesiasticus please, because people will have probably heard about this. And I think it's sort of put across in a very simple term as almost like, a, I think that you explained it like this in the book, almost like a doomsday book of the monasteries where they're all assessed for their wealth. And then anything below £200 a year income gets closed first. And then after a while, everything over uh, £200 income. So let, let's let's take it back. What was the, the Valor Ecclesiasticus and what was its purpose? So, the Valor is, as you say, best understood, I think, as the Tudor Doomsday Book. Um, so it's an audit of the property and income of all church institutions, not just monasteries, all church institutions. So again, uh, places like hospitals, which are ecclesiastical foundations, and university colleges um, come into scope. Um, uh, any part of the church which um, holds an endowment, that is that it takes its income from a piece of real estate, um, both property that is farmed, um, but also commercial or residential property as well. So all forms of property, including churches, because churches, um, individual parish churches um, are pieces of real estate in that they hold small amounts of land, typically, um, but they also have the right to tithes, um, uh, contributions from their parish community, um, which is a, a source of income. Um, and when monasteries are founded in the, in the post-conquest period, they are given churches alongside other estates. Um, so, uh, and, um, Cathedrals, other other ecclesiastical foundations also holds churches. So it captures all those forms of property. It attempts to come up with an estimate of what their income is annually. And it does attempt to drill down to a very high level of detail, um, including, and it's one of the fascinations of the, the Valor as a document or set of documents, um, including how many sheep are grazing on that bit of land. Um, or um, how many market stalls does this institution rent out in the market square? So we, we find that Battle Abbey in Sussex has got a set of market stalls that are rented out to traders. 
uh, and gives them a little bit of, of income, for example. So you get these these wonderful little snapshots of of ground level um, detail of of the local economy, if you like, in so far as it relates to uh, a church institution. Um, it also captures something of the the human dimension. So. Um, who rents out this property? Because a good deal of this property isn't being managed directly by churches, um, monasteries, uh, but they put a tenant in to manage it. Um, uh, and sometimes it's sublet as well. So you actually go down a whole chain of individuals to find who actually is occupying this place. Um, so we, we get something of a sense of, of the, the lives of other people in the neighbourhood that are touched by by these institutions. Why is it done? It's, it's one of the steps that immediately follow from Henry's headship in 1534. So as I said before, that statute really sets out a, a blueprint for how Henry envisages in, in 1534 he is going to exercise his, his role as head of the church. He's saying he's going to subject them to scrutiny and, where necessary, carry out reform. Within a few months, he sets out two initiatives that put those two things into practice. One, a general visitation of all church institutions, which is only what bishops had done before. Um, but he's now, for the first time, he's taking um, authority to do it himself. So the 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 revolutionary element there is that that here is the king doing it, not not a a member of the church. But in parallel, he um, sets out to audit institutions too. Now, valors that is an audit, a valuation of a description of property and a calculation of of what each piece of property is worth. They've been done many times before for individual institutions or, and for individual parts of their property portfolio. So again, as with so much of this, there's nothing new in the, the machinery. What's new really is the, that the king is doing it and that the scale is, is nationwide. So um, visitations have happened before, but they've been led by churchmen for church institutions. Now the king is claiming the right to do it. Valors have happened before, but nobody had attempted in England, um, evaluation of all church institutions. It only happened once before in the 13th century, and it had been attempted by um, the papacy as a way of estimating how much tax could be charged of the church. So um, it's intended, first and foremost, not even as a pretext for closing smaller monasteries, it's intended above all, first and foremost, simply for Henry to understand what is the um, scale of this thing, the church in England, that he has now effectively become chief executive of. So um, as you might expect somebody coming into that role, they want to understand the business from the ground up. And that's what he's doing. Um, now, the challenge with it, once again, is the, the ambition looks groundbreaking, modernizing. In its execution, of course, it's much more difficult to actually deliver. Um, it depends a huge amount on local cooperation. 
it depends also on the quality of the, if you like, the paper trail. Um, you know, it's a bit like any any audit process when the auditors come into a company, um, they might do it very briskly and bring a very fantastic report of the state of the business if the paperwork that the business holds is really good. Um, but if if what they find is a bit patchy, then the output, the, the report will be a bit patchy. And this is what we get with the Valor, that um, in some institutions, the auditors find very comprehensive records and what we get written up is is this extraordinary um, insight into how these institutions work. And then there are others where the auditors simply say, we couldn't find an answer to this question. We couldn't find any information about this. So it, it's a it's a very um, patchy document overall. Um, it's also like any, any enormous audit and anyone who's um, professionally been involved in um, accounting or, or has seen a set of accounts, you really do need to know your way around to navigate them. Um, I think there are, it's a really interesting moment in Tudor and Reformation history because the valor has become something that um, my sense is that historians sort of gingerly step around because they don't want to get into it because it's really um, quite overwhelming. It's obviously it's covers the kingdom and all of these diverse institutions. Um, it's overwhelmingly lines of figures as well, um, which I think a lot of people, including historians, find quite overwhelming. Um, and I've been, I've noticed actually some, some even some recent accounts by by um, you know well-known Tudor historians. It's amazing. I often when I um, feeling mischievous, I will look in the index of a sort of new narrative history of Henry VIII's England um, to see how they touch on the valor. And it's it's always interesting to see that that, that they move on from it quite quickly um, because um, it's it's not an easy body of um, data to get into. Um, it's only been um, there's only been one attempt to put it into print in six volumes in the early 19th century. Um, and um, even the, the very act of, of producing it, it was produced as, um, um, uh, as a decision that came out of, of, of Parliament um, that this was an important national record. It should be put, in, put into print. Um, but even that attempt ended up in sort of recrimination and argument and um, um, the um, the keeper of the records who was put in charge of it ended up having to be summoned to a House of Commons committee to answer for the the mess that had been made of of doing this. So um, the valor, I mean, that's a little footnote to how history is done. But the valor is is a is a sort of rather dark and shameful moment in in the way that we've managed our, our public records, um, and nobody um, in the two hundred years since they printed it, um, nobody quite understandably has tried to actually reproduce it. Um, and um, uh, I wonder actually how many copies of, of that edition have, have really ever been taken down from the shelf. So it's, it's, it's a, a fascinating story, but it deserves to be much more central. Um, and anyone who uh, wants to um, understand, okay, 
I don't know, I live in Wiltshire. What would I have seen if I'd walked past my local monastery in the 1530s? The Valor tells you, and, and it will tell you that there were in that field over there, there were 200 sheep and over there was a water mill. Um, and the person who rented that land was so-and-so. And in some parts of the country, you can follow a direct line from what was recorded in the Valor to what street names, field names, farmhouse names are even today. Um, so it's it's a wonderfully rich record. It sounds it sounds fascinating. I don't suppose people can easily get their hands on it though. Then <laughs> no, well, I'm um, I suppose I'm perhaps predictably building up um, to to something. No, not right now. I'm actually working um, with. Um, National Archives at the moment to on a project, um, big project to digitize the Valor. So um, what we're planning to do is to, um, for the first time since 1535, to make it properly accessible. Um, and not just for history researchers, but um, uh, for, for wider public. Um, because Anyone who's interested in the history of their own locality and for some people, you know, literally interested in the history of their own property or the fields in front of their house or, or, or whatever, uh, there's a huge amount there. And, and so we do hope over the next few years that um, it can become more widely available. Well, that's that's very exciting. I, I live in a place that apparently has no idea really what, what was here before. And yet... There's clearly something that's been here for, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred years. So I would be dipping into that. So I can just imagine now an army of local historians and, you know, they're going to be able to uncover absolutely, really interesting absolutely. things. Um, and and that, that's, um, that's absolutely what it, it should be for, too. I think, again, so much of what happens in the 1530s has been compressed into a sort of high political story and I, I'm really passionate about actually turning that on its head and saying no what what really is of value to anyone who wants to know their their history is what these episodes tell us about the communities in in the kingdom and um, uh, we we need to we, we I dare I dare to say we've had enough of Henry and his emotional turbulence, and 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 we've we've probably done to death Henry and Cromwell. Um, so let's allow ourselves the moment to actually understand what it meant for people in different localities. Mm. Mayor's right to Cromwell when it becomes clear that the friaries are going to close in 1538. They say you must understand what role these places perform in um, meeting different social needs. If you were trading in leather goods or small metal goods or wine um, or meat, um, then the loss of that large institutional market would just um, bring you to your, your knees. If the dissolution hadn't happened, what kind of a Elizabethan England, could we have looked at? 